Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We uh, welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV and Alan, myself, and our distinguished guests will do our best to answer you live and we'll certainly follow up after the show. My good friend and regular co-host Ray Wong is on his way to Davos for the World Economic Forum. So we have uh, our favorite and most popular substitute co-host for Disrupt TV joining us, Alan Lepofsky. Alan is Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research where he covers the collaboration software industry. He has 20 years of experience in the software industry, so he clearly started out when he was 15. And, uh, <laughs> and Alan helps companies understand how to develop and implement collaboration solutions that help employees get their work done and done fast and smart, best way to serve customers. He is an influential blogger, keynote speaker, and a must follow on Twitter at A-L-A-N-L-E-P-O, Alan Lepo. Alan, welcome to Disrupt TV. Hey, Vala, good to see you as always. Thank you for a favorite you know, guest co-host is better than bringing in the second stringer. I like, I like that, thanks. <laughs> no, no, you are, you, are, you, are, you are one of the best. I, I'm pretty sure if I ever have to do something else, Ray's gonna have you uh, jump in as the permanent co-host, so. Uh, I love being here, thanks for having me. And I can't wait to talk to all three of today's guests. It's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Our first guest is one of my favorite people, and it's a privilege for us to have Angela Blanchard, President uh, Emirata of Baker Ripley and Senior Fellow at Brown University. Angela is globally recognized expert practitioner in community development, disaster recovery, and effective long-term integration for immigrants and refugees. What an incredible person. Uh, the world needs more Angelas today. <laughs> Angela received the 22nd Heinz Award in the human condition category for creating a transformative model of community development that has become a powerful and positive model for cities looking to thrive in the midst of complex demographic and social change. Angela's breakthrough strategies have successfully revitalized neighborhoods by leveraging Houston's diversity while providing a powerful model for cities across the globe facing the complex challenges uh, of community transformation. Under Angela's leadership, for more than 30 years, Baker Ripley became the largest community development organization in Texas and among the top 1% of charitable groups nationwide. It currently serves more than a half a million people, half a million people in 48 countries and operates with an annual budget of a quarter billion dollars. Angela has been profiled in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Atlantic, Fast Company, CNN, NPR, and so much more. She is recently appointed the non-resident senior fellow in the uh, Centennial Scholar Initiative at the Brookings Institute in Washington, DC. She's another fantastic follow on Twitter because her stream kind of feeds the soul and makes you a better person. At C-A-J-U-N-A-N-G-E-L-A, Cajun Angela. Angela, welcome to Disrupt TV. Thank you. I think the only person that really enjoyed that perhaps was my mother. <laughs> I had such a hard time cutting the bio. I had such a hard time shortening it to a minute. You've done so much. Expert practitioner community development. That's, that's, it. that's all. So I'm so glad to see you. 
Um, so happy that you're here. So happy. Alan, please. Sure thing. So Angela, let's, you know, Vala's unbelievable introduction aside, I know they're always fantastic. Why don't you take a minute, like you said, you shortened it down to, you know, community builder. Uh, for those that are, that are new to following what you're doing, you know, I, I love watching your TED Talks and some of the other videos that are out there. I could spend the next 45 minutes just asking you about three or four of the, the phrases that, that I've written down about what you do. But why don't you start off with just a minute or two telling us in general um, the background of what it is you're doing to, and which communities you're helping to reshape. So my, my passion really is to see the realization of human potential. And I think we work through cities, and especially now, cities are destinations. There are massive inflows of people, cities being shaped by migration, by urbanization, by climate change. And in every city, we have this challenge of how do we welcome and integrate? How do we create on-ramps, um, uh, landing places and on-ramps for the newly arrived so that we keep a constant flow, uh, uh, we keep that constant flow of people engaged and we keep uh, them connected and we can make sure that what they have to offer uh, uh, can be valued in every city. So the way I have gone about that work is to work with communities and neighborhoods, with the people themselves. There's a practice of appreciative inquiry, which is a how we take a deep dive into finding out what matters most to people and how that shapes what they long for and hunger for. And then side by side in these communities, we draw investment in to create, uh, to bring to life the things that they're trying to accomplish in their lives. Um, we shorten it. We say everyone, everyone wants to earn, learn, and belong. And we try to make that possible in every city. So everyone wants to earn, learn, and belong. I, I, you know, Universal human hungers. <laughs> well, those are beautiful. One of, you know, one of the ways you summarize that in one of your talks is that, you know, as you say, these new people are coming in, they have needs, and we wrongfully too often ask them the questions of, you know, what do you want? What do you need? And you framed it in this idea of people don't want a handout. They want to be part of the story. And, mm -hmm. and you know, hearing you talk about that, I was just like, oh my, you know, I can think of how many times in my life, well, let alone refugee status, just at work, how you can apply that point of view to something. Well, I, th I think in general, all the old constructs that we created that are de deficit model thinking. So let's, let's look at you, for example, Alan, instead of uh, being thrilled at your contributions about how work is being redefined, how we're reshaping the world and in all these different ways in terms of how people offer their, how they, people do earn. We said instead, let's, let's look at how you're not quite getting it right. Let's give it an examination of how you're not measuring up. Let's create some paradigm spreadsheet, um, uh, some set of metrics, and then we'll measure you against those. Not you ideally and what you have to offer, but you against a set of metrics that you'll never meet. And that's utterly demoralizing. So why would we apply that to vulnerable communities? Why would we walk into a community in colonizing fashion, uh, mm -hmm. announcing that, oh, it would be great if you all took care of your health in this way, educated your children in this way, went about in your business startups in this way, instead of going in to discover what's there, what's working, what have people created for themselves out of their own deep desire and out of their own imagination. 
And then let's work to leverage that. Let's work to support and enable that that they have created for themselves. People don't support things that don't include them. That's very well said. Yeah. You read a you read a post about you wrote a post about time. Yeah. And you said time passes differently for the privileged than for the neglected. Yeah. Time, time haunts those of us working to nurture the world into a more caring place. Time rules us as we work for fairness, justice, and kindness. Yeah. Think about how much time you have to spend working with elected officials and other <laughs> entities to, yeah. help, to help inspire them to have empathy for disruption and people that have been displaced. Yeah. We're in a period of the longest government shutdown as we speak. Yeah. How do you big work? Disruption. Yeah. How do you, big disruption. Uh, some would argue manufactured disruption with real consequences. But how do you, how do you spend time exhausting time to work with government officials to build consensus and actually create value in, in, in a time of chaos and disruption? Well, first of all, I think if we're working from an appreciative place, it means I'm going to have empathy and an appreciation of their circumstances as well. This is a person who's taken a job I wouldn't do under any circumstances. And they have a finite amount of time. They have a term of office and they're very clear within that framework is it, that's the framework within, within which they have to act. So I need to bring them those things that can be acted upon with the power they have in the framework they're working in. This is a kind of sensitivity and respect for circumstances. It's, it's born of something I call, you know, I think is a major leadership talent called improvisation. So if you get the best improvisers, they work with what's in the room Every, uh, every response they have to a, to a prompt is yes and, and how might we use this and how might we further this and what's available within the arena that we can use to move this forward. So it's not coming at someone in, a, in an aggressive way, trying to move them and push them in your direction, but it's understanding and working with um, the situation so that you can avail yourself of the opportunities that will work for both of you. So it's, bring, it's me bringing them things they actually can. The worst thing that can happen to us, of course, we've all felt it. Someone comes to us passionately, pours out a need, a desire, something they really could use their help with, and it's not something we can do. We have no power. We are not in that arena. So it's being thoughtful about how we approach people that can, that can contribute, that can further what we're trying to accomplish. Thank you. That, Angela, that, that thoughtfulness you talk a lot about as being a very key leadership role. I think you've said, you know, leaders have to be people that can step in and even see empathy for things that happened before they got there, things outside of their scope. Yeah. Um, talk to us about, you know, for our audience who, you know, may not all be working in community development, but running organizations, what, is that, what advice do you give to CEOs? So instead of, you know, what should they know about that empathy and that, that ability to, to help things that have happened? Well, all the advice I give to CEOs, I learn from refugees and immigrants and displaced people because displacement is a powerful lesson in life and it's a grounding lesson. You're wiser for having uh, made it across that gulf from one shore to the next. So improvisation is an important piece of advice for CEOs because 
you have to pay attention to the arena you're in, search it for what's happening, use what's available, which leads to the second bit of advice. You've got to be a constant student of resources, assets, and strengths within your company, within your community, because the unexpected will happen. And, and a clear inventory of what you have to work with is you're going to be your starting place for responding to disruption. Um, the third thing is all about relationships. And we're, we're keen on networks and we are metric driven and we tend to think the sheer number is important, but what's really important is how deep the trust goes with the individuals with whom you work regularly. Because when, again, the unexpected, the most demanding things happen, your ability to respond is going to center around, um, if you're going to move at the speed of trust, and that trust is going to be based on how well we understand what matters to each other, uh, what we deeply care about, and what we're really profoundly capable of doing. And I think just the fourth thing, it's so important. We like to talk about diversity and inclusiveness and a whole bunch of other things that start with how we're different. And starting with the art of welcome. The fourth thing is the art of welcome. As we move through this dynamic world in which people are moving about the world, moving in and out of companies, we're working with collaborators, partners, friends. Art of welcome, how do we tend and befriend so that we have authentic connections. And I think, I think those are, you know, those are four, the four big pieces of advice. It's, you've got to be good at improvisation. You have to be a student of what works and understand the resources you have, constantly monitoring that, build your relationships and master the art of welcome with all the rituals of food and friendship um, that bring us closer together. Uh, I have about a million tweets. <laughs> I just want to let you, I want to let my Twitter network know there's going to be lots of Angela tweets. Well, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard I'm tweetable, but you know, it actually comes from being Cajun. You are, like you everything are be the most stuff. tweetable guest we've ever had. So, so, <laughs> um, yeah, but this, 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 this notion of inclusiveness, I love the phrase moving at the speed of trust. And, 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 and being self-taught and aware and interested. I think a lot of that is planted in, uh, in, in, in terms of humility. And, yeah. um, and humility also uh, speaks yeah. to admitting when you're wrong. And you, you wrote another post in terms of the power of saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. And you said the power of I'm sorry is, open, uh, is to open the door to a different relationship with the past and with one another today. Deep regret is not a quagmire. It's the solid foundation of which new structure of togetherness can be built. Yeah. So my my uh, question is, by the way, you're a beautiful writer. Uh, uh, it's like poetry. Um, if I can just get more than 240 characters on the page, <laughs> You are, I mean, I, 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 I get goosebumps reading your work. Um, can you teach humility? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that the, that's the beauty of disruption and displacement is that it reminds you of how profoundly vulnerable and human we are. And we're all castaways on this planet, as essentially here as, as uh, trying to make our way and make some meaning while we do it. And the message for leaders in the I'm sorry, uh, that lesson is so important. We all stand on sacred ground, often blood soaked, and 
where there's been great suffering and great struggle and great strife that came before, even in the mildest fashion inside of a company, what you're birthing today is also on the grounds of what you're saying goodbye to. And I see a lot of companies where there's, and a lot of groups and communities where there's been this inability to simply acknowledge the passing of something uh, that may have meant a lot to some people and we're glad to say goodbye to it at this point, we know it should go, but people put their time and effort into that. And that acknowledgement within a company that that was worthwhile, even though we're moving on, actually does more to keep people engaged. When we tell people move past, get over, without getting into it, uh, it doesn't heal. Uh, we diminish the amount they're willing to trust and commit going forward. So you see this in a more brutal fashion in communities where there's actually been these terrible tragedies and these deep, this deep violent act that impacted everyone. And at that point, as a leader, you are walking in and standing on the ground where that happened. You must be able to know that while you may not be at fault, you're standing there today, you are responsible. And that owning the responsibility for what came before even when you didn't directly act upon it, it takes a, uh, you know, you have to have a strong backbone and be much more concerned about everybody else than you are for yourself. Owning and being responsible for what's come before. That's uh, something I think I need to work on, you know, even in my life. So thank you, you know, just for, for inspiring me, let alone hopefully everybody else on this call. Um, and you're, you're so open and transparent about where some of this background of your, your knowledge comes from. You know, you talk about your, your upbringing and your family and, you know, the home you lived in with your siblings and things. And you, you said a phrase that I, I absolutely adore. You said you need to create, or it was something your parents, I believe, taught you or you learned from them, create a life from imagination. Yeah. And, you know... Yeah. I can't think of anything I'd, I'd rather sort of be able to do on a cold wintry day here in Toronto. Um, talk to us uh, about that for a moment, how that applies to all these people coming in. And you, you mentioned the hardships and the gaps they have to go through to get to, to this wonderful state. How do you teach these refugees and these new citizens how to create a life from imagination? Oh, no, no, you've got that backwards. Ah. Because it, this is really... Um, you know, Vala and I had a wonderful conversation at one point about his family. A few of us sitting here today, we're all descendants of the people that survived everything. You know, everything the world can throw at you. Uh, we're here because they made it through. And what this place people teach us is, um, you know, what it's like to start over without any of these uh, props that we're used to, without the stage all being set, without the mirrors all around us that remind us of who we are. So they, they teach us what it's like to stand on a ground that's in some way where everything's been washed or burnt away and imagine what would be possible and doing what they can with what they have, they take each step forward. And they're crafting literally a new life born of their imagination, but using what's in the arena. So these are the lessons you learn from displaced people. And that's why they're so valuable in every community. What drew them to us was imagination, was a sense of purpose, and the, um, the conviction that somehow on the other side, on the next shore, um, they'd be able, there'd be somebody first there to welcome them, to pull them ashore, and second, that 
um, with what's available there, they could build a new life. They only know it from their imagination. And my parents were a great example of that. Virtually everything they tried to create from us, they did from their imagination. Neither of them had a childhood they wanted to repeat. Uh, they, want, they, wanted, they wanted us to have a completely different life. And yeah. That's amazing. Angela, thank you so much for spending a Friday afternoon with us on Disrupt TV. Please, everyone, follow Angela on Twitter at Cajun Angela and read her blogs. Uh, it will make you a better person. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you very much. Y'all have been wonderful. I appreciate being with you. Thank you. Have Bye. a great weekend. Wow. Uh, Alan, now you know why rain out. <laughs> Friday afternoons is our favorite time of the week. And yeah, no, it's uh, to be able to speak to someone so inspirational. It's it's amazing, and and to learn, you know, it's this isn't about entertaining; it's about learning. And uh, you know, I feel like a better person in fifteen minutes. Absolutely, me too. And uh, speaking of learning, uh, we have an exceptional technologist, entrepreneur, Tim Springer is the founder and CEO of Level Access. Tim has dedicated nearly two decades to ensuring that technology will not only meet regulatory standards, but also support real world use by individuals with disabilities. As a leader in the digitally accessible industry, team has uh, Tim has provided compliance solutions to thousands of organizations, as well as advised large corporations and federal agencies on technical challenges and best practices required to successfully achieve accessibility. He was named, in fact, uh, the White House named him champion of change. We love having champions of change on our show. You can follow Tim on Twitter at TimSP00. Welcome, Tim, to Disrupt TV. Yeah, thanks for having me. I will be neither inspirational nor particularly educational, but I'm fun, and it's Friday <laughs> afternoon. Oh, I, I highly doubt that. I think you I doubt that. I doubt that. <laughs> you're, you're, you're working in a field, by definition, his only existence is to help people. So I don't I don't, I don't think you can put yourself down that way saying that you're not doing, you know, you're not doing that. So you are definitely inspirational. So with that said, like, why, why don't you tell us, you know, so what, what got you, I think the company is about 20 years old. Um, you know, what was the driver? What's your passion behind this area? What, what helped you get started in the accessibility space? Yeah. So, uh, so, so roundabout journey, um, Back in 1997, 1998, um, we started to form the company and uh, I was, I'm, I'm almost 40 now. I know you can't believe it because this youth and beauty and radiance that I have, uh, but I've been doing this about 20 years. And so I was back as a, uh, a freshman in college uh, and a bunch of friends and I wanted to start a company and that was, you know, 1997, 98. So that was what everybody was doing then. And we had gone through a couple ideas and then one of our friends uh, is a guy in a wheelchair and he was like, Hey, I was just in Europe and it was really difficult for me to find a place uh, where I could go and get information about what was accessible and what wasn't. It would be great if there was a website I could go to, to figure out what places were accessible. And we were like, that's the greatest idea ever, right? You know, like this is an amazing moment. Um, and so essentially we started building this website. It turned out it was not the greatest idea ever, but we had found this issue of digital accessibility in building that website. And so then we pivoted and basically said, hey, instead of making one website accessible, why don't we make all websites accessible? Uh, and that's how we ended up getting into this space. And then over time, what it's really grown into is just kind of a core belief in 
the need for uh, digital equality. And, you know, kind of our view here at Level Access is that, look, access to digital technology is important. And so, right, everyone wants to earn, learn, and belong. I thought that was a, a good framing from Angela. And so today, earning requires that you use a computer. Uh, if you don't have access to your computer, you really don't have access to some of the best economic opportunities. You know, learning, when I want to learn something, I Google it and I, I go online and then I watch a YouTube video and then I read a Wikipedia page. Uh, and belonging more and more is done online. Like we're interacting right now over uh, the web, over TCP IP, et cetera. And so if you think about that really to, to have a fully realized life these days, you need to have access to technology. And so our view is that technology has this profound empowering force in people's lives. And then in the lives of people with disabilities, that's even more pronounced. So you kind of think of technology as a lever. That lever is even stronger in the lives of people with disabilities when they're included. And when they're excluded, it's even worse. It even has a more disempowering or negative impact on their life. So when we looked at a way we could really impact and change the world, we said, well, that, that's, that's it. That's somewhere we could really uh, change the outcome of people's lives and change the outcome, you know, hopefully of the globe on a longer term basis. Okay, so you failed is not inspiring. <laughs> hmm? Okay, good. Well, so fair enough. Then carry on. Uh, let's see. I, oh, I don't I think we may have lost Vala there for a moment. So let me let, let me. Vala was too inspired. He was like, I, "I'm out. This is too much for me." So he's, rest thought, of he's gone off. He's doing some ADA testing. He's making sure all of his his websites and everything are are, are right up to snuff. So you know, so so twenty years of building this. I, I have some history and some background in this that I can't wait to ask you a few questions on. But let's start off with. Um, you know, what has changed? You started this, you know, 97 with some friends from college wanting to make all websites accessible. Well, it must be dramatically different today. You, you know, you, we all go to the University of YouTube and Wikipedia, as you say. So what, what sort of changed from the technology that's helping you guys fulfill your goal better than maybe you could 20 years ago? Yeah, so, so super big picture arc of history. Um, 20 years ago, this was a theoretical idea that was maybe a nice to have for some technology companies, some web companies. Now, this is a common requirement we see in day-to-day -day development. In 20 years from now, this will be an inescapable requirement of all development. You will talk about accessibility the same way you talk about security and privacy. It's just something you got to do as you build things. Okay. And what's really changed is over the last five years, we've just seen a drastic increase in the business drivers for this. Um, and so for, for better or for worse, we're kind of neutral on it as an organization. Um, legal enforcement has drastically increased in this space. And so that enforcement has then driven companies more and more to adopt these uh, requirements, which honestly, most organizations are uh, like desirous of adopting them anyways. I think they have an interest in doing this because it's the right thing to do. And the laws then sort of give them air cover to be able to actually do that. But really, the biggest thing we've seen change is that this has gone from a you know, theoretical requirement to a real hard business requirement. And that's driven the growth of our business, but then driven, you know, the maturity of the technology, the maturity of the approaches, et cetera. But we're still really in the very early, uh, early innings of this, you know, so if this is a baseball game, I mean, you're in, you know, the second inning uh, of a nine inning game here. Um, so we're interested to see kind of what happens over the next five, 10, 15 years as this becomes really, really ingrained in the mainstream. Well, you, you mentioned that some, there's some legal aspects to it. So there's some enforcement that's coming and that it's going to become sort of more commonplace than it is today. What are some of the challenges, whether it's a huge company or a small company face in doing this where, you know, the trade-off and the cost to them and the speed, and 
I think of, you know, I started my IT career at IBM and, you know, we were famous for, you know, inventing things quickly, but never getting them to market. And things like accessibility were one of the reasons. IBM would spend a huge amount of time making things were colorblind accessible, uh, reverse character sets, blah, blah, where these little startups would come up and do like an English only Chrome browser, really cool thing that served 1% of the market, but that got out there where we would have to struggle to make sure everything happened. How do, how do you instruct or help or guide companies to find that right balance of doing what they need to be doing, but also be cutting, cutting edge? Right. So uh, the short answer to that is uh, we use data and math to help people make a lot of those decisions, um, which is kind of a trite answer from a technology person, but, but really is the best way to make those decisions. So if you think about your contrasting experience at IBM, where you had what I would call pretty robust accessibility standards, and that ultimately, uh, you may argue, slowed your time to market. And then you think about a small company that has light or no accessibility standards and could put things out into the market. The question is, at what end of that spectrum does it make sense for a business to live at? And essentially, as the market of your product gets bigger and your product gets more mature, you're probably going to evolve to a more mature accessibility position. So if you think about it from a legal risk perspective, right, the small startup just doesn't have a lot of legal risk because the product isn't that widely used. And so there's a degree of accessibility investment it makes sense for them to have just kind of from a general societal perspective, but they may not have it as well perfected as a larger software application. And then as enforcement goes up, that line, if you will, sort of pushes further and further into small business territory. And there's a point at which it's just any app going to market has to have this in it, but we're just not there at this point. So it's really kind of weighing those things out. And our view is that our market is best served, digital accessibility is best served by us putting that in really concrete terms and not having it be qualitative and discussions about you should do this because it's good and it's an abstract thing. We think you should be able to do it because it's really defensible in terms of your business plan and how you actually want to go to market with a particular app. Uh, but the real direct answer to your question is these things do live on a continuum. Uh, and one of the misconceptions is that accessibility is a black and white thing that you either are or are not compliant. And that, that's really, for a variety of reasons, just not the case. It lives on a continuum and there's an investment point that's optimal for your organization. And you should work with a company like Level Access that can help you figure that stuff out. That sounds like a, a perfect use case, which sort of segues us into the company itself. Let's, let's talk about Level Access for a minute. You said, you know, been around 20 years. Um, you were self-funded for the first, what, 17, 18 of that. And I think of, and back in 2017, I think the first time you guys looked for outside funding. What, what's uh, yeah. And then what changed? What caused that? And what are the pros and cons of that? Tell, tell our audience. Yeah, so, so, right, so we had a, a 40 million plus Series A, which is kind of ridiculous, right? That, that's a pretty big Series A for a company, um, which was cool. And uh, as you mentioned, we were pretty much self-funded bootstrap. We had, we had some funding from friends and family and some other stuff, but, but really nothing formal. Um, two big things happened. One was the timing in the market was right. And so we were, the, the market had started to firm up. And our view was there was going to be a dominant at scale player that could really do this effectively at a you know, large scale for big enterprises. Um, but there are certain things you got to do to be able to be that player. And so we said, it should be us, basically. Like, it's going to be somebody. It might as well be us. Um, so the market timing was right. And then the second one was the growth in the company was right. And so kind of our view was, you know, we want to get an arbitrary number, $100 million, right? We want to get there. 
and we could figure it out, but us figuring it out on our own will take six, seven, eight years. If we partner with someone whose business is growing companies like this all day long, the likelihood we will get there is drastically increased. And then in addition to that, the time is probably drastically decreased. So, so the likely outhood, the likely outcome uh, goes up and then actually your time goes down. Um, and basically that has been proven out. So for me, it was the capital was nice. Um, we didn't need the capital as much for expansion given where the company was at, um, but the expertise was just amazingly helpful. And, and that's a good way to think of kind of the entrepreneurial decision there, which is my business is growing, my company, um, our private equity partner, uh, JMI Equity, which is a wonderful uh, organization out of Baltimore uh, in San Diego, their business is growing company like companies like mine and that partnership when you get that dynamic right uh, just has a huge positive uh, impact on the company uh, and that's what we've seen over the you know 18 plus months since the investment hmm. that's interesting you know you've made that switch from and again congratulations on 40 million dollar round that's uh, definitely deserves a round of applause but uh, you know now that you're I want to use a negative word, a little bit more beholden to an organization than you, than you were in the past. You now have, you know, shareholders that you have to think about and things. How do you balance that, you know, making profit for your organization versus the social good of what you're trying to do in the first place with the company? Um, how do you, how do you find and, and strike the right line there? So, so we were, Thankfully, pretty straight up when we went out uh, to the markets uh, about who we were and about the the social impact aspect of our business um, and found an investor that that really had fallen in love with that and liked that and w wanted to support that. So the first thing about getting the balance right is just being upfront about what kind of business you are and what do you want to do. Um, and ultimately, we said, hey, here's how we want to go about operating our business in an effective way. Here's also how we want to go about affecting societal change. And so if you want to invest, that's what you're buying into. Uh, and good, in my experience, good sort of uh, tier one investors uh, will lean into that. And the reason they'll lean into that is it turns out it's not only good for the company, they, they not only get to do something good with their capital, which is actually important. Uh, for a lot of people in private equity, you know, shocker, but um, a lot of people there are actually really concerned about societal impact, but it turns out it's actually really good for the company as well. Uh, and it actually, it, it moves the needle on a lot of metrics that actually are important uh, to entrepreneurs. And so that was kind of our combination was, it was just about being open and candid with everybody about, hey, here's what we think we can do with this. And here's how our plan is to balance, you know, EBITDA as an example with serving uh, people with the, the needs of people with disabilities um, and then making sure everybody was aligned with that. Um, but it's tricky balance and it's, it's a tougher balance to kind of for less mature companies as you get started um, to not necessarily get those two things right. And what we've seen a lot of challenges with in um, some peer companies in our space that haven't done as well is they're really great at the social dimension, um, but they're not great at running the company. And so then the company goes bankrupt. Okay. And the social dimension never happens or the opposite. They're really great at the company dimension and not great at the social dimension. And so you end up with an entity that doesn't really have a soul. And ultimately, it's not that compelling to people that want to uh, spend their careers with your organization. So it turns out at the end of the day, getting that balance right actually helps you run a much more effective uh, organization, in my opinion. Well, I love like, you know, talking about how you find that balance and partnering with someone that has those same goals. You've you know, done great as an entrepreneur starting this company from, again, back in university with a bunch of friends that had a great idea, 
making it through, becoming successful. What advice would you give to someone that's starting off now? Because things are certainly probably different than they were 20 years ago. Is it better? Is it worse? Is it more competitive? Is it easier to start a company now? Talk to those that are out there going, hey, I want to do this. As a, so my first advice, if you want to be an entrepreneur, is don't be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, my second chunk of advice, if you want to be an entrepreneur, is don't be an entrepreneur. Uh, and my third chunk of advice is if you ignored my first two points, you're probably going to be an entrepreneur. Um, so that's kind of the first thing is you, know, you have to just be so stupid and pigheaded about this to be successful um, in this line of work. Um, that you really, really have to have a huge amount of determination for it. My view is that it's probably the best time it's ever been uh, to start a company. There are some countervailing points to that, and we can, we can argue some macro points, um, but really access to capital, access to expertise, access to scalable technologies that you can start with, with um, low investment costs, all of those things are at, at much more compelling points than they've been at in the past. Now, as technology companies, you, you could argue if you're starting a company outside of technology, that's not the space. But for technology companies, it, it is a really good environment, in my opinion, to start a company. And really, the key thing is you hear people talk about team all the time, you know, and people, you know, professional investors will kind of evaluate market, they'll evaluate team, then they'll evaluate product. Um, and now that I'm 20 years in, early I would have said, well, team's not that important. I can just sort of hammer this through. And that's true. A, a sole entrepreneur, just sort of uh, Bob Nye, who's a partner at JMI, uh, who's on our board, has said that, you know, a sole entrepreneur can by force of will drive a company to a $25 million a year company. But getting beyond that is really impossible without a team. Um, and so what I've also found is it's just lonely if you don't have a good team with you. Huh. Um, and so just kind of really taking a step back and saying, hey, these people that I'm going to start this company with, do I want to, you know, be in the weeds with them in high stress emotional situations for the next five years? Um, will that be fun or will I end up, you know, hating them after three years and, and not be good? Uh, so being careful and thoughtful about how you pick your team. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I know we have a few more minutes. I want to ask a question here. I'm going to preface this with if I offend anybody, I'm not meaning to. I'm trying to find the right words to have this conversation. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a good question. It's gonna be, a, it's gonna be a good question when you have to start off with the disclaimer. Um, there is, you know, you work in an industry that's so interesting to me and, and with an audience that's of such interest to me. There is often this wrong notion that people with disabilities, disabled, handicapped, whatever the terminology are, are somehow in need, or I'm using the wrong terms again, you know, worse off or not normal, all these negative connotations. And I've heard so many amazing lectures lately over the last little while of flipping the script on that and finding the ways that these people are better or enhanced or, you know, augmented in these capabilities. And I, I look back at when I was at IBM, there was a visually impaired person in my organization and she had a screen reader software. I think it was called JAWS. Uh, that's around at this time. I'm, I'm not sure which tools there are that are out there. She could process data, I'd say five times faster than the rest of us. She could input data typing, I would speculate two to three times faster than all of this, of all of us. And so I love that there's this movement to sort of flip the script. And it's not about, you know, solving problems. It's, it, it's it, you know, how do we enhance these people's capabilities? Am I even framing this conversation correctly? And, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of that topic, that side of this accessibility world? Yeah, so, so I think of that as it speaks to the adaptability of technology is what we're trying to do. 
And without getting into deep, boring technical uh, jargon, a lot of accessibility comes down to less, I am changing the experience that is there so it works for a particular population more, I am enhancing the experience such that it can be modified to the communication needs or the interaction needs of particular populations. So as an example with your uh, coworker at IBM, right, there were, tech, there were things that you could do technologically in websites, web applications, mobile applications, whatever technology she would be using. So that would translate well into that auditory experience. And she had a far optimal auditory uh, experience and auditory um, sort of uh, ingestion pathway than you would. So if you think about it kind of in that framing, that's what I found useful, which is we're trying to make the technology so that it translates into an experience that's optimal for an individual. And what's optimal for me may not be optimal for you. Uh, as an example, right, my parents, the low, uh, low contrast, low font size on a mobile phone is not optimal. So they expand it. Well, so that's an accessibility feature. And so that's ultimately what we're trying to build in is ways for you to take base technology implementations uh, and change particularly the user experience such that they work for the needs of specific people. Well, I'm embarrassed to say I have to push, you know, command plus more often now on my screen than I used to have. To have to, to to get that bigger font size so uh falling into that trap as well well look tim thank you so much you know not only for for joining us today for what you guys do again you know self-deprecating or not you really are doing something super well for this world that's making a big difference and uh we appreciate hearing from you and working from you and want to hear back later this year on you know how technology is changing the game and what the next step is for you guys okay sounds great thanks for having me you're very welcome have a great weekend Okay, so to, to those that are out there that normally get to, oh, wait, we might have all of Bach. I was just going to make excuses for you not being here. Are you, are you technically returned? <laughs> I am so sorry. Oh, no, uh, no problem. I'm glad to have you back. This is uh, Disrupt TV, and unfortunately, I was disrupted <laughs> with, uh, with my laptop in a Oh, it may still have problems, or is that just me? No, no, it's not you. All right. Well, I get, I'm going to assume that Paula is, is back frozen once again. And Dion, uh, I, I, I'm gonna, you and I, why don't we kick off into this? So That's right. We can roll up our sleeves and go at it. I think we can. So this is going to be a tough one. Dion and I have been friends for you know, well, more than a decade here, working in similar fields, interacting with similar people. But for those of you that, that don't know both of us, let me start off this introduction. Dion Hinchcliffe is Vice President and Principal Analyst here at Constellation Research, where he covers leadership strategies for the new executive C-suite. He's an internationally recognized business strategist. I've, I've seen him in action in that. Best-selling author. I've, I've read his works enterprise architect and an industry analyst and a keynote speaker. So I don't know if I did that justice the way Vala would, but I'm trying. Dion, why don't you tell us what it is your specialty is and, and what we're going to chat about here today? Uh, well, sure. Actually, that was a great introduction. So um, it, it covered the high points. And really, today, I spend most of my time working with, with digital leaders. And leadership today doesn't just come from the C-suite anymore. Leadership comes from all walks of the organization, all walks of life, often outside your organization. And this is what, one of the things that we're really learning uh, is, uh, is to be able to tap into the power of what some call uh, change agents. Uh, and this is, a, a, you know, the whole conversation on digital transformation is where I spend a lot of the time saying, how do we take where we have been and, you know, create a place uh, that, that will take us where we want to be as a business, uh, as a society, as a culture, 
uh, we've got a, a lot of work uh, to do because the world is changing faster um, than um, than our organizations are, than often even we are personally, right? So it's just it's dealing and coping with change successfully, and we have to. You know, my I guess my whole practice can be summarized as how do we match tech change with human change? They're both equally important. I'd even argue that the human component is more important. And so, what are the techniques and and possibilities there? So it's it's an exciting time and exciting exciting work. Absolutely. So you, you brought up, you know, the buzzword bingo for those that are out there following us along with their bingo cards, digital transformation, obviously key top of the CXO levels, you know, mind these days, but you talked about that that leadership is changing a little bit. Let's, let's dive in. You know, we're starting off the year here. Those CIOs, what are some of the things, what are you predicting that they need to be focusing on for 2019? Well, and I, and I excuse me, so, uh, summarized this in a post recently, uh, the 12 things I think will be happening um, uh, this year to the CIO. And the big one is the CIO is no longer leading digital transformation uh, in most organizations. The CEO is doing it. They're leading from the front of the organization. 40% of CEOs are leading digital transformation compared to 20% of CIOs, right? So that's a big shift that's happened in the last year or so. Um, and that's, um, that's really kind of put the CIO in a tough spot because they had an opportunity the last five years to get out in front of the organization and say, here's the arc of the possible. Here's what technology could enable us to do in terms of, uh, of revolutionizing customer experience, creating new digital business models that will sustain us into the future, uh, making sure we see uh, uh, the blue market territory out there. There is so much unclaimed territory in the digital world, even though so much seems to have happened. Uh, but organizations typically aren't even looking that way. They're saying, how can I just kind of incrementally improve what I'm doing? And the CEO is finally saying, well, we have to take this conversation uh, up to the board level, up to the very top of the organization and rethink what we're doing and who we are. Uh, and so you have, I think CEO, uh, CIOs have one chance this year to kind of ingratiate themselves to the CEO and say, I'm your right-hand person for doing that. I can partner with the board and I can map out that future for you. I'm the best person. I have most of the tech budget. I know where the data is. I know what the technology is possible, is capable of doing. Let me partner with you. And I think that, that was my, that, at the top of my recommendation list. And, and you have to at least try for that or you become, you know, essentially a glorified PBX guy. <laughs> so if they're not going to spend their time replacing that PBX in the closet with, you know, a cloud-based solution, if they're really doing that, high value business transformation, which you mentioned, isn't just digitizing things, it's changing the business model, it's changing who the company is, what they do. Then if they're the right person, what is the barrier? What, what, what has been preventing them from having that relationship with the board today? Is it just not awareness or is there something standing in the way? Well, I, I think we've seen an evolution in the CIO uh, mindset, right? So the skills haven't been there. I think it's taken most CIOs in the industry a while to see the, the writing on the wall and then prepare themselves with the skill, right? So senior executives are always looking at continuing education. They're trying to learn faster. They build networks of people that they can lean on and get advice from. They're trying to learn, but it's taken them a few years to get up to speed and saying, I, I need to be able to have the skills to do this. Most CIOs haven't been able to do that. Now, even with the skills, you need permission. So getting that permission from the rest of the C-suite from the board saying, I'm the person that you should uh, put the eggs, many of the eggs of the future of the company in, in my basket. I am the right person for that. That's all taken years to put into place. And, and there's, I think one, 2019 is the year which you have to really make that play. Even if it's a Hail Mary or the CIO is going to be the infrastructure person, 
uh, and not the innovation person. Well, there's nobody out there better than you to have stories and a background and know the CIOs that have done this successfully. When you came on board at Constellation a few years ago, you started something new for us, this thing called the Business Transformation 150. Do you wanna explain to, to the, the Disrupt TV viewers that are unaware of what that is? And then let's talk about some of those success stories. Sure, so when I came on board, I mean, I talked with Ray and, and all of you uh, in the organization saying, our, what's really lacking is storytelling. We don't, uh, like we do in many other industries, we don't publish a lot about what's really working because there's a competitive advantage. And so uh, uh, to, to concealing, you know, how I, I've discovered a secret on, in the digital world that works really well I don't really want to share that. So we don't, when we go to conferences, you might see the Netflixes and a few other organizations that are really ahead talking about that, but there's not enough storytelling about what works, who's doing things in their industry and making it happen. So Ray and I sat down and said, let's create, try to identify some poster children. These are digital leaders. Again, you know, tend to be C-suite, but can be from any walk of life uh, that are, are doing something special with emerging technology in a disruptive, you know, move the needle kind of way for their organization. So we select 150 members each year. We bring them out uh, um, to the to CCE, which is our, you know, Constellation's annual events every year. Um, and we, we tell their stories, right? We, we, we capture the knowledge that they have and we try and help spread it. And a lot of it is just connecting people together so that they can find those leaders and talk to them and, ex and exchange uh, best practices. Uh, and so I, we think that's, that's really important. That's one of the big, biggest missing pieces. Why organizations are going so slowly, even though technology is changing so fast, is we don't have enough proof points ahead of us to be able to pass find the way. And this should help. Proof point. Love that concept. Proof point versus shiny object. You know, which of those actually has more business value? And I think you and I have both seen over the last decade or so, every time there's a new technology, a new exciting trend, a new buzzword, People want to jump on it just because you're doing such the opposite. You are focusing on working with people that have proof points, measurable, specific outcomes, and that are making their organizations more successful. Are there any stories you have that you know you maybe want to highlight that are, are standing out these days? Well, Put first, just spot. to address your point, and no, no, it's fine. Um, the um, First, your point is absolutely right. Uh, MIT uh, did this great digital transformation study, and they looked at the, how people were spending their innovation budgets on emerging technology. And they, and they, loved them. they found there's two categories. There's the, the, the fashionistas, people who are throwing money at every hot new thing that comes down the, the pike, right? So if there's a new buzzword, they, they invest in it to see if there's something there. Uh, they turn out to actually not be as effective as what are called the digerati, people who are very much more practical things all right, let's not, let's not jump onto every bandwagon. Let's really think through how we can apply this to our business and invest selectively. And they uh, spend money more wisely. They don't waste budget. And they have, they have more impact to their bottom line with digital than, than the fashionistas. And so, what, so there is real um, systemic data saying that you shouldn't just uh, throw your hat onto every emerging technology. The shiny object syndrome is a, is a real problem. You need to invest your management time your resources and your ability to execute into the areas that are really going to impact your business, and that's and that's true. And so, um, yeah, I've uh, there's there's so many good stories out there. Uh, one of my favorites, and this is a, a topic that uh, you and I are both interested in, uh, is the uh, is the you know, make, making our organizations more connected from the people side, uh, and that's the story of Bosch Global. Uh, still, I think the best social business story, right? Social business being, you know, let's connect our organizations, uh, let's remove all friction to engagement. 
um, let anyone participate, uh, let's create emergent outcomes intentionally, you know, those types of things. Um, they were able to achieve, they funded their efforts, uh, and they used like Dave Gray's book, my book, and some others uh, kind of as the inspiration. Um, and they're very German, I'm mean, Bosch is based in Germany. Um, they, they gathered all their leaders, 350 leaders together in, their, in London and said, we're moving more slowly than our small competitors, let's go faster, um, let's connect the whole organization, let's roll out enterprise social networks. Um, let's hire 50 community managers, you know, which you never hear numbers like that anywhere else. Uh, let's, let's make the pay grade to the community manager as high as the CEO can go as high as the CEO, grade 18. Uh, and then let's document this all in public, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I, and, and show, you know, let's, eat, let's, uh, let's drink our own Kool-Aid. Uh, and so great success. Two years later, they actually, they were done with the project, right? Um, and, and, and now it's just about refining, uh, refining it. And so there are organizations that if you organize at the top, and you can get people committed from across the organization, you can drive great amounts of change. And they have lots of fantastic data about, they, they, they can now um, re, uh, um, uh, prepare, reprovision a, um, a uh, manufacturing line, went from six weeks um, to seven days, right, using uh, better collaboration tools. So those are, those are my favorite kinds of digital transformation stories. Well, that, that's a great story. I hope everybody listening can go out there and, and read more about that. Bala, I, I believe you've rejoined us. Dion and I have been chatting about social business. Welcome we're, back. We're right now talking about sort of that, that business transformation where uh, the example Dion just gave us is Bosch sort of rebuilding both their internal and their customer experience, their external customer experience. Do you want to jump in and ask anything about that? I'm just so upset that I couldn't introduce Dion. I had like the best intro ever, but uh, <laughs> oh, like uh, I, I worked so hard on the intro. No, I, we just had recent research that said, uh, and this was 5,000 respondents in a survey that said the customer experience is as important, in fact, maybe even more important than the product or the service a company provides. When you think of customer oh, oh. experience and, and employee experience, are these two separate things? Should, are, they, are they joined at the hips? How should CIOs think about, or any transformation change agent, think about the, the, the user experience, whether it's the customer, the business partner, or employee? Yep, uh, great question. And customer experience is number two on my CIO uh, predictions for 2019. That's gonna be where the CIO is finally investing and spending time in a way that they haven't before, working with the CMO in a way they haven't, haven't before. Um, is employee experience an important support for customer experience? No question, in, in two ways. One, you need a good employee experience to be able to create the, the, the customer experience. And on top of that, the customer experience is delivered with the employee experience, right? Okay. That's what people don't seem to get, right? Uh, and uh, some of it's automated, sure, and a, and a growing part of it will be automated, but so much of the customer experience. You go into a customer care center, and this is the, the speech I'd usually give. I get, you know, there's 20 to 30 applications that that customer service agent has to use to satisfy your request. The knowledge bases, the trouble ticketing system, uh, you know, language translation, uh, looking up um, the um, product manuals, all sorts of things that uh, they have to le learn to, to be able to serve you. And that is a, customer service is one of the biggest parts of the customer experience, and it's one of the most neglected because it's perceived as a cost center, right? So, um, and all of that is that horrible digital workplace in most call centers uh, um, is what the problem with customer experience. So there's no question. It's, you know, our, our colleague, Nicole, and, and I are actually currently writing a report that talks about, 
exactly about that, this blending of the internal employee experience and external customer experience and asking the question, why? Why are we talking about these as, as separate things? So I think you're, you're completely spot on there, Diane, that these need to be brought together. They need to be owned together. They need to be deployed together. They need to be sort of seamless. Um, as we sort of get towards the end here, I know we started off talking about some of your predictions for 2019. You're, you're very solid in that sort of tangible world of the things that the CXO should be doing. What new and exciting thing? You're, you're privy to so much information. What's the newest thing you sort of see coming down the pipe that maybe falls into that shiny object syndrome, but is something we should all be paying attention to? Oh, the uh, digital transformation of strategy. I'm now seeing uh, th these tools that allow you to manage your strategy from the very top of the organization all the way down to the very bottom. So you can actually see, is it being carried out? Do, are people even aware of it, right? That's usually the first indicator. Do, do you even know what the strategy is of our organization? And most, the answer in most organizations is no, right? I, I don't know what my corporate strategy is. I don't even know if, what I can do day to day to enable it because I don't know what it is. So we're seeing, a, a, seeing this exciting kind of interesting technology category emerging uh, and, and, they, and they're all kind of all over the map. Where, but they, I think they serve this need is that we have to align our organizations. Uh, this is more direct and connectedness, right? So instead of a generic enterprise social network, which has great value because it can be used in literally uh, an unlimited number of ways, but it's not aimed at specific problems. These new tools connect people and organizations around strategic uh, important topics about Here's our strategy, and how are you uh, uh, going to execute against it, and then measuring that, uh, and then rolling that back up. And uh, and there's that, now I've seen data now emerging that that has real impact, and, as it should, if it's uh, if you could have an effective way of visually managing your strategy. So that's that's what I'm seeing, at least from the from the C-suite. Dion, the beautiful uh, graphic that you included in your 2019 predictions piece segmented the enterprise and the operating environment. And in the operating environment, you had a multi-cloud landscape, you had a war for talent or new talent and skill sourcing, and then you also had end-to-end -end customer experience just on the operating environment piece. So are we asking too much of the CIO in terms of you've got all these emerging technologies, you have customer experience that's now leading priority ahead of product and service, and you've got the enterprise asking you to be secure, be scalable, be robust and adaptive. What do CIOs need to do in order to condition themselves like professional athletes in order to survive this onslaught of demand on IT? That's a great way of phrasing it. So yeah, the CIO has to be a professional athlete. And you are, you're gonna be an NBA or NFL level player. You, um, had that level of skill to be able to do this juggling and that's one of the things i said in my piece you have to be the, the best juggler you've ever been you've better been you have better been training the last 10 to 15 years to do this because it is the toughest job there is no one has more hands than the cio right now uh, and they have profound tension one is a risk management a big control you know i want to prevent cybersecurity and regulatory uh, issues that are going to derail me and get me fired and i need to push my organization to all these new crazy places that look crazy today, but where we have to be tomorrow, uh, those those are in direct conflict. And so I see the CIO also having to basically create their own chief infrastructure officer that reports to them, right? So there needs to be the separation of concerns. Uh, so you're seeing this kind of mini organization, uh, and I, there's a lot of CIOs are talking about this. We're all seeing it. 80% of the infrastructure piece of the IT department's kind of going under under this role. It still all rolls up to the CIO. The CIO is kind of firewalled 
from that day-to-day -day concern that can really uh, focus on the strategic direction. That's a real trend. Um, not big enough, I called it out this year. I mentioned it in my predictions, but next year, uh, it, it, you have to do it or you, you'll break. No one can train to that level, I don't think. And my last, my, my last question is, do you have advice on, in terms of sequencing of projects? How do CIOs or frankly, any C-suite line of business leaders, where do they go to other than Constellation for excellent analysis and advice in terms of sequencing how they go throughout this transformation journey? Well, big change, big projects, big initiatives have a high failure rate. Everyone is avoiding them and for good reason. Uh, there's two there's two ways it seems to be happening one is you you break things down into manageable programs and projects um and then you make sure the trains leave on time right so you ship things no matter what this is what agile tell us is that you have working software all the time ship when the window comes uh and you, you whatever features are working you you get out there uh so you have to you have to be very time time-based these days right um and so and then make sure your dependencies you have to sort through your dependencies if some really depend on the other ones and that determines your order. But you have to break them down. Uh, you, have to, you have to tap in the change agents who can make them happen and you have to scale up. You have to do 10 times more um, than you, we did three years ago, right? So uh, you've got to scale up these efforts and then, and then loosely couple them. And that's where microservices and all kinds of cool tech talk right. makes that easy to do uh, now in a way we couldn't before. All right, well, Diane, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I knew this would happen. I, I have 25 <laughs> questions left even. Chat with you now. We'll have to dedicate uh, an hour. Great to you guys. We, we, are, we are at the top of the hour. I think we're going to have to say our thank yous. And, and Vala, why don't you and I sort of close things off here? Yeah, thank you, Diane. Tim, I'm, I'm so thank sorry you. I missed your segment. I'll be watching the entire. Alan, you, I bet you didn't think about, you never thought about signing up and being a solo uh, uh, <laughs> driver of Disrupt TV, but I can't think of a better person to, uh, <laughs> to deal with disruption during the show than, than you. Hey, it's, um, like, yeah. it's like coming off the bench and hitting the winning home run. There you go. That's, that's right. Exactly. You did that for sure. So well, we no, don't have the, a show. The guests made it easy. The guests made it easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. They always do. We don't have a show next week, although throughout the week, we have Ray at Davos at the World Economic Forum. So we will have shows throughout the week where Ray is live at Davos. I'll be dialing him from Boston and we'll have guests throughout the week. We will follow up the following week uh, uh, on the February 1st, which is our third year anniversary show. And uh, so we have a couple of shows from Davos in Tuesday and Wednesday, but we'll come back the following Friday, February 1st on our anniversary show. I believe we've crossed the 310 unique guest milestone. We have Perry Hewitt, who was the first chief digital officer at Harvard University or any college and university in the country. She's a CMO, digital strategist and board member. We have Miguel Camino, Executive Vice President of Global Cities at MasterCard. And we have John Reed, one of our favorite guests, who's a co-founder of Digitomica. So amazing guest. Alan, thank you so much. Your final thoughts based on the conversations we had with three extraordinary guests today. Well, I just think you know, there's this amazing theme of what all three people were doing is focused on very different communities of people that they want to help. You know, Angela, obviously unbelievably inspirational about building communities and understanding empathy and the needs of people, yeah. not asking them how you can help them, but ask them on, you know, what is it that, that they have that's working and how can you kind of continue to focus on that? Tim, you know, not in the citizen side of things, but in that accessibility for helping everyone on the entire internet be able to get level access 
to information and knowledge and Dion helping companies transform and become the best that they can be, you know, helping that CXO level speak to the board and sort of figure out how to improve their companies. These are three different people in three different categories, all making the world a better place in very different ways. And again, great to be able to speak to each of them. Mm -hmm.